the book of Haggai, chapter 1. We did the survey a couple of weeks ago, so we'll get into the book today, into the bulk of it. Well, not the bulk of it, the start of it. I don't want to jump too, too far ahead of myself. This is a very short but very powerful book. Haggai chapter 1. And if you're able, let's stand together. We're going to read verses 1 and 2 this evening. Haggai 1 verses 1 and 2. The Bible says, In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, in the first day of the month, came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet unto Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, This people say, The time is not come, the time the Lord's house should be built. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this time in the Word, the time we had in prayer together for the singing. What a blessed uh, time of singing that was. It was no coincidence, the order of the songs we sang as the victory of Jesus is what brings the blessed assurance. And so we rest in Jesus because of his great victory on the cross. We thank you for that. Oh, that you would set Calvary before us every day. Set the cross of Christ before us every day. Not as a place of sadness and gloom, but of victory and triumph. He who didn't even withhold his only son, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? As we pray, hold the cross before us. As we serve, hold the cross before us. As we go to bed, as we get up, as we go to work, as we go home, hold the cross before us. The time is now to build the house of the Lord. Not to dally in our own hobbies, not to dally in our own whatever, our earthly nothings. The time is now to build the kingdom of God, to be a witness, to be preaching everywhere the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to learn from the mistakes of Israel, not to repeat those mistakes, but to live lives of worship before you. We ask all this now in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Be seated. Amen. This book is really a... I was ready to preach this last week, and I studied it more this week. This book is so powerful for being only one, two chapters. And tonight we're going to start in the meat of the book of the prophet Haggai. It's amazing to me that although the direct context of these minor prophets was typically Jerusalem or some Gentile city like Nineveh, there really is spiritual application for us in our world today. This demonstrates to us the tremendous transcendence of the Bible, doesn't it? What it, it meant something for them. There was a context, historically speaking, but it means something to us as well. I think about that passage, I don't remember where it is now, but I've quoted it quite a bit where Jesus is talking to the Sadducees and they deny that there is life after death, that there is resurrection. 
And Jesus, in trying to rebut them, said, not trying, in rebutting them, Jesus said, Have you not read that which was spoken unto you by God? I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Now, when that was spoken, 1,400 years before Jesus is having this conversation, there was a historical context to it, wasn't there? But yet it applied to those Sadducees as if it were given to them. Right? Jesus says, have you not read that which is spoken unto you by God? Unto you. Say, wasn't that spoken to somebody else? It was. And to you. The Bible transcends time. What was said to people in the Old Testament may not have a direct application to us, but there's always a spiritual application to us. The Bible is such an amazing book. It reaches down through time and touches all of us. So when God tells these Israelites, what are you doing? Building your own houses while mine lies in ruins? He's speaking to us, church. He's speaking to 21st century Americans who are so enamored with our phones and our computers and our TVs and our technology, our ease of travel, our free time for hobbies and whatnot. He's speaking to us. You guys, there are, you, there are Christians today, this is going to blow your mind, I know. There are Christians today who work hard, retire early, and spend their remaining years on golf courses in Florida. What a waste of time when there's a great commission to fulfill. You realize there are people today in India who will live their entire lives, die, and never hear the name Jesus. And we're so enamored with our hobbies. Think about that. Nowhere in church history has the church had people who are basically independently wealthy. I know, that sounds funny, but take the average retiree today who has some pension and social security. I'm not picking on anybody in our church. I'm saying the average Christian today, most of us retire with more money coming in monthly than most people make in most countries around the world. You realize that most Christians today could retire to Thailand and plant churches and never need to raise support to go because they have enough money coming in? Or places around Africa and Asia that we could just pick up and move to because we have the resources. There's, with the way the economy is right now, there are people in LA County who could sell their homes, take that money, and live the rest of their life in a third world country preaching the gospel. What I'm saying is, what he says to these people in Haggai, he says to us, why are you wasting your life when there's a kingdom to build, there's a house to build, there's a gospel to be preached? Jesus gave us the Great Commission. And we've decided to be soccer moms. Nothing wrong with soccer. Well, there is. It's a terrible sport. But there's nothing wrong with kids' sports. But we invest so much 
Most families in America today, I think I said this a couple weeks ago, spend more money feeding their animals than giving to missions. Most families in the churches in America today spend more money on their after-school sports than they give their local church. And most Christian retirees waste their lives on them. Now, some don't. we got some here. I know he doesn't like me saying it, but Reuben, I'll call him out publicly. He gives his life to serve the Lord. Anything we need, he does. Earl, too. He can say yes all he wants to. He does it, too. These men give of their time and their lives. But a lot of the church... Listen, I don't plan on making it to 65, end of sentence. But if I do, I don't plan on making it to 65 just to waste my life on a hobby. I mean, we have this idea. All right, you become an adult, and maybe you go to college, you get out, and you get married, you get a job, and you give your life to your kids. In your job, and then we've bought into this lie that, well, the rest of it is yours. Spend it on you. All of it's Christ's. That's what we've lost sight of. All of it belongs to Christ. Your 20s, your 30s, your 40s, your 70s, your 80s, all of it is Christ's. I think the message, overall message of Haggai is don't waste it on frivolous nothings. The Bible is so transcendent. It reaches right down into our own day and time. And it speaks to us. We saw that in Jonah, didn't we? Boy, the book of Jonah. Everybody in this room, I promise you, if you're honest, identifies with Jonah. I do. I don't, I don't want to do that, Lord. I mean, I don't like them very much. I'll do anything else you want me to do. I'm not going there, though. How about Habakkuk? What a book. The wickedness of the nation set against the promises of God. Boy, that reaches our time, doesn't it? We live in a wicked nation, don't we? Wickedness abounds in our land. But the promises of God. Too many Christians are getting caught up in these conspiracy theories of doom and gloom. What doom and gloom? We have the promises of God. The new heavens and the new earth. We win, by the way. The gospel wins. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Stop the doom and gloom. Paul Pastor, was in. The global elites are conspiring. Read Psalm 2. They conspire against the Lord, against his Christ, saying, let us cast them off. What did God do? He laughed. And they said, you know what? I'm going to set my king on my holy hill of Zion. You're not going to cast him off. You're going to bow to him. So Habakkuk said, listen, I mean, if the vines don't bear fruit and if, the, if all this stuff fails, still we're going to rejoice in the God of our salvation. Because we have the absolute promise of God that he is going to overcome the world. He has overcome the world, by the way. We rest in that. He's overcome the world. Before I get too far into that, let's get into Haggai. Huh? There's 
so much to say. These books, they reach right down to our time. To set the stage for what's happening, God's people have been in captivity for 70 years. Due to their idolatry and their failure to obey the law, the temple was destroyed and the people were taken captive. Remember, these are the same people who King Josiah found the book of the law in the temple and had never read it before. The king of Israel had no idea what God had said. That's how far they were from God. They had no idea. By the way, we're, th we're that way today in America, aren't we? You ever hear an unbeliever quote the Bible to you? Boy, they mash it up. You know why? They've never heard it. They've, they've heard little sn snippets they, they grab onto. The Bible says, thou shalt not judge. No, it doesn't. Nowhere. Find it. I'll give you $1,000. It says, thou shalt not over here in Exodus. It says, judge not over here in Matthew, but those are two different books, very far apart. You're mixing it all up. They don't know the, the word of God. You want a fertile mission field? America. I'm not saying don't go to other places. I'm saying that we, ha we have a culture today that is void of the word of God. Right. They don't know it. Young people don't know it. People growing up, I've talked about these deconstruction videos I, I like to watch. One thing I've learned in watching these videos is these people grew up in church. These aren't like got saved for a couple years and then fell away. I mean, these were like raised in church people who are misquoting the Bible, misapplying the Bible. As I watch the video, I think to myself, they don't know the Bible. 21, 25, 30 years in church. They don't know the Bible. You know why? Because the pastor didn't preach the Bible. I have a pastor friend on Facebook showing my wife his church service on Sunday. I took screenshots of it because it was going by real quick on one of those story things. I wish I kept it. I should delete it. I should have, I could read it off verbatim. But basically he had, his, he had the big screen behind him and his point on the screen was like, what was it? It was like, you're not going to reach your full potential by sliding in slowly. You've got to go in head first or some nonsense like that. I'm like, this is a Sunday morning service. Over a thousand people in the audience, and you're giving a self-help talk on you got to achieve your dreams. No, you got to surrender yourself to Christ. Except, man, deny himself, take him his cross, and follow me. He cannot be my disciple. Tell the people that. But we have a culture that doesn't know the Word of God. Sitting in church because the pastors don't know the Word of God. They don't preach the Word of God. We've got, honestly, a real hunger for it. You'll find people. You go out long enough and share the gospel, you'll find people. Although there's many who don't want to hear it. There are a great many who are hungering for the word of God. They don't know it. It was prophesied to the Jews that King Cyrus, Cyrus would return the Jews to their land. Now, we need to be aware of these prophecies in the Old Testament. It's very important because they give great support to our faith. Now, our faith is not based on facts, right? So I was listening to, was it yesterday? I think it was yesterday. On YouTube, I was watching a, a guy that was at a college addressing students about apologetics. And this student basically said, you know, I grew up in church, and I believed these facts about the Bible, and then I became a scientist, and I saw these other facts, and so I abandoned my faith for science. As if you have to abandon one, for the, no, they're not mutually exclusive, they, they go together. 
But what he's saying is, my faith wasn't true heart faith. It was, I believed facts and then found other facts that made me not believe these facts anymore. That's not salvation, right? Salvation is a change of heart. So our faith isn't on. I'm not trying to convince you to believe something to be a Christian. And you get this all the time you're out preaching on the streets, you know. Somebody's going to say, oh, well, you're not going to convince people that way. We're not trying to convince people. We're preaching the gospel, and faith comes by hearing the word of God through the power of the Holy Spirit. He calls Christ sheep, and they believe upon him. We're not here to give you know, their facts versus our facts. You don't believe what I'm preaching, that's fine, move on. Then it's not for you. It's for somebody else. It's not fact-based. But knowing facts, historical facts, can strengthen our faith a lot. So don't base your faith on historical facts, but definitely you can look at those facts and be greatly encouraged. Let me give you a couple of examples. Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is a great prophecy of the death of Jesus. Even right down to their, they're wagging their heads and they're, 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 drawing, they're, they're casting lots for his clothes. And people said for years that, well, that was a later addition to the Psalms. Because they recognized if this is historic, it has to be true. But now... In the 21st century, we have thousands of ancient copies of the book of Psalms that contain Psalm 22. I've mentioned before here, Isaiah 53, a prophecy so precise, critics of the Bible for years said it was added after Jesus, after Jesus. And then in the 1970s, 60s, they found the Dead Sea Scrolls. Well, we know the Dead Sea Scrolls were buried 200 years before Jesus. And what did they find in the Isaiah Scroll, do you think? Isaiah 53. See, why are you saying that? Because they knew ahead of time what was coming. Because God told them what was coming. Say, well, Jesus, he could have fulfilled those prophecies because he knew Psalm 22. Well, first of all, you have to admit then that Psalm 22 is in the Bible before when Jesus was alive. But he couldn't make them draw straws over his clothes. That was spoken ahead of time. Isaiah prophesied that Babylon would fall in Isaiah 21.9. He specified that it would fall to Medo-Persia in, in Isaiah 13 and 21. One of the most amazing prophecies of Isaiah is found in Isaiah 44.28. Turn there with me. Isaiah 44, 28. My goal tonight is to strengthen your faith in the prophecies of the Scripture. These could not be lucky guesses. Isaiah 44, 28. And the Bible says in Isaiah 44, 28, That saith of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and shall perform all my pleasure, even saying to Jerusalem, Thou shalt be built, and to the temple thy foundation shall be laid. By the way, he wrote this many, many, many years before the captivity even took place, prophesying their return. Isaiah 45.1, look at that one. Isaiah 45.1. 
Bible says, Thus saith the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have holden, to subdue nations before him. And I will loose the loins of kings to open before him the two-leaved gates, and the gates shall not be shut. I will go before thee and make the crooked places straight, and I will break in pieces the gates of brass and cut in sunder the bars of iron. I will give thee the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places. Thou mayest know that I, the Lord, which call thee by, by thy name, am the God of Israel. For Jacob my servant's sake, and Israel mine elect, I have even called thee by thy name. I have surnamed thee, though thou hast not known me. I am the Lord, and there is none else. There is no God beside me. I girded thee, though thou hast not known me, that they may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord, and there is none else. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. What makes these prophecies so incredible is that Isaiah wrote them 150 years before Cyrus was even born. A hundred. And this is not like the modern day charismatic prophets that are like, you know, prophesying there is great darkness coming to this America. You know, and then some tragedy happens and oh, that's the prophecy I prophesied. Really? Tragedy is going to happen. That's not very specific. Like you didn't say, you know, 150 years from now, an earthquake will shake Lomita, but torrents will not be shaken. That's amazing, right? Not only the earthquake not shaking the next city over, but 150 years, and that's, we don't see that today, right? They can't do it because they're not speaking for the Lord. How could Isaiah prophesy of a king who's not born, whose parents aren't born, whose grandparents aren't yet born, will return a people who are not yet captive to rebuild a temple that's not yet torn down? And it happens. Not only did Israel go into captivity, not only did Babylon fall to the Medo-Persians, but Cyrus becomes king. You realize that God is sovereign? I say that right now with the baby in the ICU. God is sovereign. Isaiah prophesied that Cyrus would return the Jews to Israel. That means... Cyrus' grandparents being born where they were, to the families they were, them meeting and getting married was guided by God. And having their babies, his parents, were guided by God. And their meeting and their marriage was guided. And God brought all, everything that brought Cyrus to the throne to one day give the edict for Jews to return to Israel. All of that was being guided by God for 150 years until it happened. That's an amazing God, people. And this is an amazing book that tells the story of it. And we can have absolute confidence, church, that what God has said, he will do. Why? Because he's done it before. He's done it before. So if the God who prophesied that Cyrus would only be born and become king, but return the Jews to their land, and he happened to become king, at the end of the 70 years of their cap. No, he didn't happen to. It was guided by God. And if the word is that precise, then as Paul says, we can entrust to him our souls. Right? He's able 
to keep until that day that which we've committed to us. I mean, why do we walk around worrying about everything when this God is in the heavens today? Why? And why are we wasting our lives on ourselves when this God is in the heavens today? Who has said, go and preach the gospel to every creature. He not only predicted the return of the exiles, but named the king that would do it before his grandparents were even born. We have great and solid grounds to believe in the truthfulness and reliability of the scripture, church. Do you believe this book? I do. I do. Not because of that. I didn't know about that when I began to believe in this book. But that reminds me, my, my faith is not blind. It is firmly established upon historical facts about God. Another amazing aspect to this prophecy is in Isaiah 44, 28. Look back there again. Isaiah 44, 28. That saith of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and shall perform all my pleasure, even saying to Jerusalem, Thou shalt be built, and to the temple, what's the rest of that say? Thy foundation shall be laid. What is God mad at Israel about in Haggai? That they built the foundation of the temple and then left it in ruins. It was prophesied that Cyrus would return the Jews to the land and the foundation of the temple would be laid, not that the temple would be immediately rebuilt. Even their fa failure to, what's the word, not neglect, prioritize God's house was even prophesied in this prophecy about Cyrus. The foundation would be laid. And what happened? They laid the foundation and they left off building. Now, if they hadn't laid the foundation, they just ignored the temple completely. Would that would that prophecy have come be, be fulfilled? No, it wouldn't be. It'd be a false prophecy. The fact that they laid the foundation and then quit, Isaiah knew exactly what he was talking about because God knew exactly what. So, what I'm saying is, stop listening to false prophets on the internet. If they're wrong one time, they're a false prophet. Because those who hear from God cannot be wrong because God cannot be wrong. Go back to the book of Haggai. This, as we see prophesied in Isaiah, is exactly what's going on in Haggai. The foundation was laid. We get this first oracle of the prophet. It's a rebuke for neglecting the house of the Lord and building instead their own houses. Haggai 1, verse 1. In the second year of Darius the king, the sixth month, in the first day of the month, came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet unto Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, saying, okay, let's stop there. This first verse has a lot of important information for you. I want us to get this information. The exile has led to a time of being marked by pagan kings. Did you catch that? In the first year, or second year of Darius 
the king. See, in past time, they would mark time by the reign of the king of Judah, wouldn't they? In the year that King Uzziah died. In the days of Ahab, king of Judah. In the days of Josiah, king of... Kings and Chronicles, they mark time by the king of Israel. In this book, we see a, a change, don't we? We see time being marked by a pagan Gentile king. We see Israel as kind of the center of the universe before this. Israel in exile has marked a change. Marking time by the pagan Gentile is very important. This is Darius I, not a different one, as some secular and liberal scholars will teach. Some say that this is Darius Nothus because they want to cast doubt on the accuracy of the Bible. The secularists and modernists want nothing more than the Bible to be wrong. Yes. Listen, when secular dating and biblical dating are in controversy, choose biblical dating. You know why? God's not wrong. I just proved that to you in Isaiah. 150 years before Cyrus was even born, Isaiah prophesies that Babylon will fall to a specific nation who they did fall to, that Israel will go into captivity, which they did, and that this king who is still 150 years from being born will send them back and he'll, he'll lay the foundation of the temple, which happened. Listen, when the secularist and the Bible are in conflict, Say, Pastor, who do you choose? I choose the Bible because it's proven itself. How many would say the secular scientists, they have me convinced. They are so rock solid, they never change their mind, right? That's quicksand to set your, your, your faith in, in, in modern secular archaeology. Quicksand. They're constantly changing. Well, we thought this was here, but now it's over here. Well, we thought these people didn't exist, but it turns out they really did exist. And well, we thought this was this, and it was over here. And God's never been wrong. Look at all the prophecies of the Old Testament. He's never been, he's never had to go back and say, oops, I'm sorry. What I meant was. So you say, are you worried that secular and Liberal scholars say this is a different... No, I'm, I'm not worried at all. Because they don't know what they're talking about. My faith is in the Scripture. The Scripture alone. Everything else must be wrong. Because the Scripture is right. That should be our automatic response. And it's funny how we do this. I've seen good, honest Christians that when archaeology will... Cast doubt on something in the Bible. Oh, well, maybe, maybe they're right. No, they're not right. They're never right. They're always wrong. But you see, they have an agenda, don't they? They benefit if the Bible can be proven wrong. So they misdate things to prove the Bible wrong. And a lot of times that gets overthrown because they find more and more and more data that you can't overthrow. The Bible says what the Bible says. If we truly and wholly believe the Bible to be the infallible word of God, then why do we automatically side with the secularists? Something's wrong there. Something is wrong. Our claim to believe the Bible is false. I know a lot of Christianity today. I was listening to a, a podcast the other day. Probably wasn't a good podcast. I don't subscribe, but I was listening to them. 
And they were Christians, so-called. And they are talking about uh, the whole UFO thing. You know. They found life on other planets. If they did, we'd just bring them here and elect them to office, wouldn't we? And they said, what if this turns out there really is life on other planets? What does that do for the Bible? And the guy says, well, I think we have to question everything at that point. Really? Just give you some contrary evidence? You just second-guess everything that God has said? The God who's never wrong. The God who predicted in Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22 to a T the death of his own son. The God who predicted Cyrus, the fall, the rise and fall of various nations. The God who prophesied the death of Christ so precisely. Gave us all the pictures in the Old Testament. The God who keeps our world going. Who regulates everything. Who Holds it all together, Colossians chapter 1 and 2 tell us. But if somebody who admittedly is wrong most of the time convinces you of the evidence, you're just going to walk away from that God? And say, well, maybe I believe them. No. Then your faith is not in God or in the scriptures at all. You either hold to the Bible and nothing, or you don't hold to the Bible at all. We have to establish that church. We live in dangerous times where the Bible is constantly being questioned, where we are constantly being challenged. Why do we believe in these fables, they'd say? Make sure your faith is truly in the Word of God. I mean so strongly that if aliens came to you today and knocked on your door and you answered the door, You'd be pulling at their costume trying to pull it off. Or casting the demons out. Say, Pastor, do you believe in the UFOs? I do believe in them. We live in a spiritual world. There are spiritual beings who can make you believe a lot of things. That too is in the Bible, by the way. Again, look to the Bible. Look to the Bible. It has all the answers. By virtue of who God is, church, I believe he has earned the benefit of the doubt. God cannot lie. He has never lied to us. Every prophecy has been fulfilled. Everything right down the line. I mean, even, I was thinking just the other day when I was studying this out, I was thinking about the, the prophecy in uh, Micah 5.2. Even specifying which Bethlehem Christ would be born in. Not just a Bethlehem. There was like five, by the way, in the ancient world. Not even a Bethlehem. Bethlehem in Judea. That's where he's going to be born. Very specific. You don't get that from modern prophets, do you? <laughs> in this town, at this time, you know why the wise men followed the star? Because they believed the scriptures. They believed the scriptures. They were convinced that God had kept his promise. Who was the man that held Jesus? That, what was his name? You know him. Simon, right? Simon. Simeon. 
Simeon. Lord, let your servant depart now in peace according to your word. For mine eyes have seen thy salvation. He was waiting for the consolation. He was not just waiting, right? Like you and I, like, okay, we're waiting for Jesus to come back. Why was he in the temple that day? You know, I think he was going to the temple every day looking for the fulfillment of God's promise. He believed it so much. He was in there every day. Is he here? No. Is he here? No. Is he here? There he is. That's him right there. That's the baby. Let me grab him. Let me bless the Lord and die. Do we look for Christ coming that way? Do we believe it? Do we look for our loved ones to be saved like that? Do we believe it? Do we look for healings like that? Do, do we believe it? Oh, that we could believe God that way. I think the problem is many times our faith is so shallow or even false that we don't have, ready for this, complete confidence that God is right. If we're honest, maybe not you, but many Christians around this country, their faith is so shallow, so weak, or even fake, that they're not fully convinced that God is right, or true, or even real. We tend to hold a eh, just-in-case mentality. Again, as I said a couple Sunday mornings ago, there is no just-in-case. It's Christ or nothing. It's the Bible or nothing. There's no just, there's no backup plan. There's no, there's no parachute. We're jumping on the promises of God. If that's not enough, if that's not enough for you or for me, then we're in the wrong place tonight. Might as well go to the bar or, God forbid, the strip club. There's nothing for us here if we need a backup plan. If God has not spoken and cannot be absolutely trusted, what are we doing with our lives? So all that to say, this is Darius the first, not the second Darius, as secular scholars believe. Let me show you why I say this. The second Darius reigned in 423 B.C. This Darius reigned in 521 B.C. This is important because we know the temple was destroyed in 586 B.C. And we know from Haggai 2.3 that some who had seen the first temple were still alive. Look at Haggai 2.3. Haggai 2 verse 3. Who is left among you that saw this house in her first glory? And how do you see it now? Is it not in your eyes in comparison of it as nothing? This is important because when they claim the later Darius is the one in the book, then they can say, well, see, the Bible's got errors. Because the temple was destroyed over here, and this Darius is way over here. So they couldn't have lived at the same time. See, the Bible's not quite trustworthy. These are important things we live in a society that is increasingly hostile to biblical truth. The word of the Lord comes to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel. This is another important point of contention that we need to learn how to answer. Most of the references to Zerubbabel have him as the son of Shealtiel. This is true to all the return records, such as Ezra 3.2, Ezra 3.8, Ezra 5.2, and Nehemiah 12.1. 
It's true in both gene- genealogies of Christ, in Matthew 1.12 and Luke 3.27. There is one exception. Turn to 1 Chronicles 3.19. I apologize, sweetheart. I am not as short as I thought I would be. 1 Chronicles 3.19. The Bible says, and the sons of Pediah were Zerubbabel and Shimei. This is pointed out sometimes as a contradiction in the Bible. You'll get this from time to time, but it's far from me. So how do we answer that, Pastor, if we're to trust the Bible? Why, why does it say here that he's the son of Pediah? Pediah? There's two possible answers to this question. One is that Shealtiel died without having a son. And his brother Padiah, or Padiah, bore one in his stead, which is common in those days, according to the law of Israel. If a brother died having no sons, his brother would marry the widow and raise up sons in his name. So by that standard, Zerubbabel was technically the son of Padiah, but legally also the son of Shealtiel. Another answer could be that Shealtiel died, and Padea adopted Zerubbabel, and so he's counted as his son by legal adoption in that passage. What I'm trying to say is don't let the Antichrist crowd put doubt in your mind as the accuracy of the Word of God. Every so-called error in the Bible has a reasonable explanation if we're willing to give the Bible and, the Word of, uh, and God the benefit of the doubt and say, God's got to be true. Let me answer this. It's important we understand that when we read our Bibles, church, because people will challenge you, especially those who are coming out of their false conversion to the faith, and they've heard some of these things, and they somebody brought to them, oh, this is a contradiction over here. Know how to answer that, because they're going to bring that to you. They're going to say, see, the Bible doesn't have the right story. Every supposed contradiction has a reasonable answer. Joshua and Zerubbabel play major roles in the book of Zechariah. And the book of Haggai. Go ahead and go back to our text, Haggai chapter 1. With the monarchy gone, until it is reestablished under the Messiah, Joshua, the high priest, is seen as the spiritual leader of the returning exiles, and Zerubbabel is seen as the political leader, as he is called a governor. Verse 2. Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, This people say, The time has not come. The time the Lord's house should be built. The people got lazy, self-involved. Boy, didn't it describe America today? Lazy, self-involved. There's this trend going around. I just I have to pick on trends because I don't understand them. They have these things that come up when you're scrolling on Facebook, and they're called reels, and they're like little short videos that people make. We are obsessed with ourselves. Like even the Christian, like I'll see a Christian one, right? And it's like things that Jesus taught his disciples. And it'll have words come up, and a person sitting there, I guess they want you to look at them, but they're not talking, and they're just, they're just making faces like. We just want people to look at us. We are so self-involved in our society both Christian and non-Christian. I, I, I watch these videos and like, I would feel so awkward not saying anything and just making weird faces. But we like that, don't we? We like being looked at. 
We like being seen. I mean, I can make a great video, but if no one knows it's me, who's going to... So even under the guise of let's get the truth out, we're promoting ourselves. Let's look at me when we get the truth out. Anyways, that's, a little, that's not even my notes. I just had to say that. It's been so bugging me lately. We're so self-involved. <laughs> These people are putting off the rebuilding of the temple. God is speaking in almost mocking terms. That's what he's doing. He's mocking them. I say almost. He actually is mocking them. The people say, this isn't the time for the Lord's house to be built. It's the time for our houses to be built. By the way, it's been 20 years almost since they returned to the land. 19 years since the return to Haggai. 19 years they've left the Lord's house in rubble and built their own homes. I'm not a carpenter and I could build a home in less than 19 years. What does, that, what does that mean? It means they've been going about life for themselves for 19 years. We too have left off the work, haven't we? This is transcendent stuff, people. This isn't just like this was just for Israel in the book of Haggai. No, this speaks to us today. We've left off building the Lord's house to go after our own fancies, our own hobbies. And listen, relaxing isn't bad. Vacation's not bad. Retire, those aren't bad things, but what we're doing with them is bad. We're wasting our lives. Watching someone the other day, her husband was a pastor. I'm not going to say the, the state, but her husband was a pastor in a different state. And uh, she was a, a, a abortion abolitionist. I mean, out there every day of the week at the abortion clinic, fighting the murder of children. He preached the gospel and planted a church and then got an early retirement. I think they're in their 50s, maybe early 50s. And he left the church and she left the abortion and they went to Florida where now she's an influencer and running marathons and going to the beach. I, I, I watched them on it. I'm like, what happened to them? So he got an early retirement with enough money to live the rest of his life. Why are you wasting it on the beach in Florida when there are people who need to hear the gospel in Mexico and China and Brazil and Chile, Argentina, should I stop there? America. You're only pastoring the church as a hobby until you got, do you retire? What, what's going on here? These aren't, um, these aren't like wackadoo Christians. These are like solid Reformed Baptist Christians who are wasting, in my opinion, wasting their lives. What are we doing? What are we doing? Jason's going to retire much earlier than I will. I probably won't. I'm too poor for that. You better believe I'm going to harass Jason to not waste his life. When he retires, the work is just beginning. I got mission fields for him. We got churches to play. We got people to preach to. And not just being our retire. I mean, just in our own lives. What are we doing? One percent. I did a little bit of math. 
1% of people I know personally, I made a list of names who are Christians, 1% of those people actively share the gospel. 1%. The rest are fishing, golfing, go-karting, training for marathons, trying to be social media influencers. I know a pastor who was disgraced in the pulpit. He and his wife both disgraced the ministry. I don't mean to say that he should be pastoring. But within weeks of resigning the church in disgrace, he's running a multi-million dollar conglomerate company that he's going to these expensive resorts and getting money from important rich investors. I'm thinking to myself, so you sinned and your repentance is to waste your life making millions of dollars and living on a golf course. I wouldn't call that true repentance. He still has life to give to serve the Lord. We've chosen to go a different way with it, haven't we? What are we doing, church? What are we doing with our lives? We've neglected the worship of the Lord. We miss church because it's too inconvenient. I'm too tired, Pastor, to be at church tonight. I'll watch it online. Whether you're sitting in the pew or sitting on your couch, you're going to be tired. Be among God's people. Be obedient. I haven't read my Bible, Pastor. I haven't been praying. Really? Listen, I'm not trying to be unkind. A God who has spoken so specifically in the Bible that right, we, can look at, we can look at Isaiah alone and say, God speaks. God knows what's going to happen. God talks to his people. And we're too busy or disinterested to talk to him. The word of God has the power to transform our lives. And we're like, yeah, no thanks. I'm, I'm, I'm just a little too busy. If you had cancer and I had the cure to cancer in a pill, just take it once every day, you wouldn't be like, well, if I get around to it. You'd take it every day. Because you believe in it. Do we believe in the Bible? Then read it. Make time for it. We should be so faithful to the Bible, we forget breakfast. Not the Bible. But we're late for work, but we don't miss the Bible. Pastor, I haven't been praying. I just don't have time. Do you sit on the toilet? I don't mean to be crass. You can pray anywhere. Do you sit in your car? Do you sit on the bus? Do you go places? Talk to God. If for some reason you can't get alone someplace, there are so many other opportunities to talk to God that if we're not doing it, it's us, not him. It's not a time problem. It's not a time problem. It's a belief problem. Because we've left off the work of the Lord for our own stuff.
Me too. I'm not looking down on you. I'm saying we. We have done this. We treat ordinary things as common instead of as worship. I told you guys. I'm running out of time. I told you guys. Our whole lives are worship. Everything we do. You know when Amy goes and sits in the NICU? That's worship. She's worshiping God by caring for her sick child. I can't go because I have two other kids to take care of. I said brats from the pulpit. That's terrible. Two other kids to take care of. And taking care of them is worship. If I offer it back to God, it's worship. Our Christian school, it's worship. If we offer it back to God, it's worship. Your job is worship. If you offer it back to God, it's worship. If you do it in his name, for his sake, as unto him. But we're so busy, so self-seeking. Do we even think about God in those ordinary days of life? The Israelites weren't for 19 years. You realize how much in the Old Testament their lives just revolved around the temple and worship? And for 19 years, it's laid in rubble. For 19 years, there's been no sacrifice. No Passover. No feasts of any kind. No sin offerings. No free will offerings. No purification. There's been nothing for 19 years. Because they've been seeing to their own things. For nearly 20 years, they returned from captivity. Even those who saw the glory of the old temple were like, eh, there's no rush. We're building up our own accounts now. This really does describe much of Christianity today. For the New Testament Christian, their life, as we see in Acts and other books, should revolve around the church, should revolve around the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul said, for me to live is Christ. What that means? That means literally his life is Christ. Everything he does is Christ's. Is that how we live our lives? Or in our hearts is the temple laying in rubble while we're building our own houses? This individualism, which is particular to Western culture, is not a Christian trait, by the way. We are not to be individualists. We're to be a body, a family of God. Why did God say the people said it's not time to build the house of the Lord? Some commentators believe the people were afraid of their neighbors. Maybe they thought the 70 years weren't quite complete. They were afraid to build the temple, afraid it'd be torn down again. I don't believe they thought that at all. I think God is making a statement that their actions demonstrate the lack of importance the temple and worship of God was to them. How unimportant it was. I knew a car salesman one time forgot to call back a contact that he had. He didn't forget. He just... Figured, eh, it's not that important. They're probably not going to buy anyways. 
So he just kind of forgot about them and moved on. One day they came into the car dealership and told the supervisor, I guess your salesman over there has decided he's made enough money. Never called me back to buy a car. I want to buy a car. Did the car salesman tell him, ah, I've made enough money to, for this month? He didn't, did he? But his actions were saying that. God's not saying the people really said, it's not time to build yet, we're afraid. God's saying your actions, your actions are saying it's not time. We have more important things to do. What is our life saying to others, church? Are we saying the time to fully surrender to Christ is not now? Maybe someday, Pastor. I'm old and gray and haggard and life is almost gone. Then I'll fully surrender. But right now I've got too much to do. You're not guaranteed old and gray and haggard. You're not guaranteed. I'm not guaranteed tomorrow. Today is the day to fully surrender to Christ. Say, oh, pastor, the time to serve Christ is later. No, 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 no. I've heard it said, you know, you don't give kids a hard time. I taught a kid Sunday school class years ago. We had a girl in there who got baptized. I got very hard on her about her attitude. People say, oh, she's just a kid. She's like eight years old. Who cares? She claims to be saved. I care. Because the same Holy Spirit that lives in an 18 or an 80-year-old lives in an 8-year-old if she's saved. And she should bear fruit. Kids, teenagers who get to, they're not going to die and stand before Christ and go, oh, you live for yourself, but you were young, it's fine. It wasn't time for you to surrender. No, the time to surrender is when you get saved. Right? If we don't deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him, we cannot be his disciples. If we're not building the house of the Lord, then we are telling the world how unimportant and how unimpressive our God is. If our lives are so occupied with other things, we're telling the world the things of God are lesser things. Our lives are a sermon. What are we preaching? What are we telling the world? Let me challenge you to preach clearly the supremacy and worth of God by our lives. We do this by making our lives lives of continual worship to God. Offering ourselves as continual sacrifices to Christ. By that, we preach to the world, he is worthy. He is worthy of our lives. He's worthy of our devotion. And we're not wasting a single day devoting it to him. We're telling the world that hobbies are a waste. Retirement is a waste. Riches are a waste. Legacy, fame is a waste. The only thing that's not wasted is lives of worship. That needs to be our message to the world. That needs to be our message to the world. Let's preach it loud and let's preach it clear. Amen? Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for tonight and the time and the word and this great book. The time has come. 
to build the house of the Lord. I don't mean the temple in Jerusalem. I mean the spiritual house. The, we are all living stones in the spiritual temple. The time is now to build. It's okay if we resort once in a while to rest, as Christ did in his ministry. But life, Christ's life and ministry was not one of leisure and relaxation. It was service and sacrifice. How unimpressed we are with such an impressive God who knows the end from the beginning, who can prophesy 150 years before a king is born. Not only that he'll be born, not only that he will be king, but that he'll do a specific thing. Our God speaks down through the ages. And we're unimpressed. Our God became a man and bore the sins of the world and rose from the dead, and we're unimpressed. Oh, God. Don't let us put off the building of your kingdom to chase after lesser things. That we may build your kingdom, Lord. Make our lives lives of continual surrender. Make our sermon clear to the world that our God reigns in the heavens. He is eternal. He is real. And he is Lord. Thank you for our church, Lord. May we be a church of surrender, not self-willed, not seeking our own, but that which is Jesus Christ's. Help us to set our affection on things above, not on things on the earth. We love you, Lord. We thank you for your goodness to us. In Jesus' name, amen. You're dismissed.